Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Silky Mitten State, a hockey podcast about Michigan. I'm Sam Stockton, and I'm joined today by my co-host and good friend, Connor Eargood. Connor, how are you doing this morning? Pretty good. A um, little bit tired after a, a long night of edits being in the trenches, but uh, you know we're, we're here, and, and I'm excited to, to talk about the wings. Hmm. Is there something going on with Michigan football these days? Hmm, I wonder. Um, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Lots of uh, lots of sign stealing allegations, specifically mm. how they're stealing signs. And um, yeah, if anyone's writing a 600 page manifesto about the Red Wings, uh, let us know. Oh, absolutely. Let us know if you're working on that. Please do send that our way. <laughs> we'll, we'll do a book review. Uh, Connor, I've also heard that you're going to a panel on Stephen A. Smith this afternoon featuring Stephen A. Smith. What's the deal with the Stephen A. Smith panel in the afternoon? Yeah, he's uh he's one of the keynote speakers for for MSBC. That's the Michigan Sports Business Conference. Not to not to product plug or anything, <laughs> um, but I got a few friends that work on that pretty extensively. So, um, they they told me it was it was must see, not nice. TV, but like I don't know, must see like in person viewing. Oh um, yeah, but yeah, so he I think it's at like four o'clock or something that he that he talks. So excited to see that and here's some uh, here's some outlandish hot takes. That sounds wonderful. All right. So we're going to do a Red Wing centric show today and we'll get back into some more um, college hockey stuff, some other kind of state of Michigan stuff uh, next week. But before we dive into that, I did want to give a shout out to the University of Michigan women's hockey program. This week, the first uh, ACHA women's division one rankings of the season came out and Michigan was ranked number four. Um, that's the highest the team has been ranked since they were third in 2014-15, so almost 10 years ago at this point. Um, and obviously, you know, still early in the season, what matters most is is yet to come. But this is, you know, an awesome marker of progress for that program and and such a testament to to the work that Jenna Trubiano and, and those folks have done over there. So did want to make sure we gave them a quick shout out before we got into our wing stuff. Definitely. And, and I echo that. Um, it, it's exciting to see. I still have the tweet notifications on for for UMish women's hockey. So, except for when social media decides to to shadow ban or ban them outright. Um, so hopefully they don't don't run into that. I'm um, knock on wood real quick. But excited to see the the progress they're making and uh, the, the the excitement for the season. Absolutely. Um, cool. So to start, just to review, since last we recorded, there have been three Red Wings games. First was a Saturday night 4-1 loss to the Bruins in Boston, then a 4-3 overtime win over the Islanders on a Lucas Raymond OT winner uh, that came on Long Island. And then last night we had an 0-2 loss at home to the Florida Panthers. That last one probably the most disappointing of the three, maybe. But Connor, more generally, what were your takeaways from those three games? I think with Boston, I was a little bit like, I don't want to, it wasn't that I was surprised, but I thought they'd at least have a, a chance and it looked like they were thoroughly outmatched. Um, I, I think Boston had complete control of that game. Like they usually do. It is, you know, a, a record setting team from last season. Granted, they didn't do anything in the playoffs, but you can't really hold that against them when, when they're that much more talented than, than Detroit. Um, and, and they showed it. Um, they, they don't really look, any they look a little differently defensively without Patrice Bergeron but it's not like this gaping hole um Detroit did not did not play well the first half of the game I thought um I thought Boston kind of 
had control from the start and 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 made made good use of their chances. And then with the Islanders, I think that that was a win that they could have expected. And I think overtime was almost a little a little sketchy that that they couldn't win that outright. I mean, the Islanders aren't exactly a a dominant team. Um, there's a lot better teams in the Metro, a lot better teams in the Atlantic. So struggling against them, at least they got the win. Um, but I, I would have liked to have seen them handle them a little more thoroughly. And then with Florida, that's a game you absolutely have to win. They're banged up. They're a team that, you know, quite frankly, I think Detroit has a, a lot more talented pieces in the lineup right now. Um, so losing 2-0 is, is a little shocking, especially when they're the Wings have had this potent offense to start the season and, and to see that they can't maintain that is is a little concerning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I'm totally with you on that Bruins game in particular, that it was just, it it played out exactly as the Bruins would have wanted it to, as far as yes. the Bruins are on top of you from the start, they're forechecking hard, they're pinning the Red Wings into their own end, um, they get an early lead, and then they can not shut it down, but they're they're able to just kind of lock in on, on continuing mm-hmm. that forecheck and not giving the Red Wings anything in transition. And when that wasn't going, the Bruins power, excuse me, penalty kill, I think is it like 96% or something and totally flummoxed Detroit. Uh, and without that kind of power play run support that we've seen bail them out of a couple other games, the Red Wings just didn't have the firepower. Um, and there's no, like you said, there's no shame in that. This is a great Bruins team, clearly, even without Bergeron, at least that's how it seems. And, you know, at least for the regular season. But it, I think a little bit of a disappointment to not see kind of more of a pushback. And then they did manage to kind of claw their way into the game in the third, where Valeno scores a beautiful goal. Um, it's 2-1 with, you know, 10, 15 minutes left in the game. But then you end up giving up a, penalty shot to David Pasternak and that goes about the way you'd expect a penalty to penalty shot for David Pasternak would go um right and all of a sudden it's 3-1 they get the empty netter and it's more or less done um yeah that Islanders game I thought so uh at thn.com slash Detroit quick plug I'm oh after every game I do a kind of by the numbers review um I'm my natural inclination is always to go toward the you know more qualitative approach but I think it is always worthwhile to kind of fact check some of that and and go through the data and what surprised me a little bit about that Islanders game as as the game was playing out and you know you could hear it on the Bally broadcast if you were fortunate enough to be one of the few people who was able to watch Bally Sports Detroit this week which I think was not very many people right but um, it, it felt as though it was kind of Ilya Sorokin who was stealing the game and keeping the Islanders afloat and that the Red Wings were sort of unfortunate to not have accomplished more or not to have gotten more from that game in regulation, kind of like you were saying. But then when you looked back at the numbers, kind of the opposite of that was true, where Billy Huso by the numbers was phenomenal. And I think you could definitely see that, especially kind of early on in that game when the Red Wings were sort of struggling more. And I think that first goal in particular, the Sezikis goal, and then the the goal that um, Dobson scored on the point, just that kind of seen-eye shot, both of those individually are kind of like, uh, I would have liked to save. But when you look at the sum total of what he did, he, he was excellent in that game. Um, and so I think by the sort of run of play, by chance creation, Detroit was sort of fortunate to be in it by the end. Um, I would say definitely exciting from a JT Comfer perspective as well. I thought it was definitely his best game as a Red Wing to date. You could see that just the kind of way he's able to influence play all over the place. I think he's one of the guys who has been driving more of that kind of chance creation from within the offensive zone that hasn't come super easily for the Red Wings um, on a lot of nights. 
Uh, and obviously, you know, to get the win is great. And uh, Lucas Raymond's reaction to the OT winner was also great. I mean, a very kind of triumphant, cathartic scream from from Raymond, which, you know, reflects the even this early in the season, those these are games with, you know, real emotional stakes for for a team that wants to be pushing for the playoffs. Um, yeah. And then to get to that Panthers game, I'm with you that that this was definitely a disappointment, especially coming off the kind of emotion of that Monday night win to go on home ice and then, I don't know, come out flat, I think is fair when you give up the first nine shots of the game before you get one yourself. And I, I would push back a little bit on the idea that the Panthers like are fundamentally inferior i guess within the atlantic race but with no branded montour with no aaron ekblad they're clearly not quite the same team that they were last postseason on the back end and as much as you can still see some of those quality pieces you know kachuk being the most obvious one it's not the most potent lineup you're going to see in the atlantic but they Mm -hmm. were sort of like boston able to kind of play the game on their terms for long stretches and this was a game where the panthers entered the night as the worst pk in the nhl and the red wings went over five on the power play so that's a tough beat and whatever you think of your five on five game on a night like that when they're the panthers had five power plays as well and they didn't score either but when there's that much special teams and you're playing a team that special teams are not very good you'd kind of like to make some hay there uh the goal james reimer gives up in the last minute of the first is just not a puck that should go in he gets it it's in his glove he doesn't squeeze it it bounces up it ends up off his back and in um like a funky break something that kind of didn't I don't know. The Red Wings were unfortunate to have a play like that end up in the back of their net. And yet in the third period, the Panthers really did sort of batten down the hatches, nothing for Detroit in transition. Again, they're able to get into their forecheck a little more. And again, empty netter late. It's all over. Uh, Can't quite bounce back from that. So yeah, not like the worst loss in the world, but it was, I don't know, disappointing to say the least to, to come back with that effort on home ice after the Islanders game. Yeah. And and even looking at the schedule coming up too, I feel like it's a game that, you know, they're they're gonna miss uh coming up. They have uh, Boston tomorrow, right? The fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boston tomorrow. They're gonna have the Rangers who are good. Montreal looks better, but I think that's a winnable game. Columbus they should beat. And and then you have Ottawa who's who's right in the same boat they are. So out out of those games, you have probably one one win that that you can pretty assuredly say they're they're probably going to get in Columbus and even they look a little better than they were at the start of the season but it's a pretty tough tough stretch as, as most games in the Eastern Conference are um so it's it's really more about just missing out on those points where it's going to bite them later um if if, if things don't work out how they plan mm-hmm. and in some ways I think that is already a testament to like that this team has sort of raised our expectations with by, mm-hmm. through 11 games that we're kind of talking oh, about this in the context of like, Hey, dropping points anywhere against a team at home that you probably feel better than. Um, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the the Panthers absolutely have had the Red Wings number for years now in mm. just uh, that Detroit has not fared well in games against the Panthers, even as the Panthers haven't been as good as they were say in the postseason last year. But yeah, with that kind of run of games coming up, um, I mean, and even Montreal in there has has come out and looked better, I think, than expectation. So um, not necessarily an easy road ahead. And like you said, it kind of won't ever be an easy road based on the mm-hmm. depth of talent in the Atlantic in particular. But I think it's fair to say in the East overall as well. 
Yeah, I and I think too a lot of the, the Metro teams are are a little older, um, and and maybe more established than than some of the rebuilding Atlantic teams, and so I think it's like it, it, it's a tough team on on different fronts. Like with the the Atlantic teams, there's a lot of younger teams, um, that sort of have <clears throat> a lot of a lot of talent that's kind of finding itself and and figuring out how to function together, just like the Wings have been figuring out. And then when you look at the Metro teams, it's like okay, there's Crosby, there's Ovechkin, like you're facing the the blue bloods right and and then you have teams like the rangers that have really come out hot lately and, and rebuilt um with, with panarin and all that so mm-hmm. and, and yeah and adam fox too being um banged up may help detroit um because it looked like he took a pretty nasty nasty hit um so you know thought, thoughts and prayers to him obviously but um if he doesn't play against detroit that is probably an advantage that they can can maximize just because he's such a core part of that that blue line Mm, yeah kind of ugly of connor to be rooting for injuries like that but <laughs> not rooting for injuries just just observing the fact that it, for detroit that's it's a beneficial situation even though you never want to see a player get hurt um it, it's still something that maybe they can can you know scrape a point against a team that's really good um and, and maybe that helps them later in the season mm-hmm. yeah and with that bruins game as the one you know immediately on the horizon here on saturday night i think that is an important game to to show mm-hmm. that you are in i think when you're playing a team as good as the bruins like inevitably that is a team that's gonna control play for long stretches and it's like gonna be able to play their game at least in part over the course of 60 minutes but for Detroit, I think, you know, and maybe it is a little bit more of kind of a bunker and counter style than they would like to be playing against a Columbus. But I, I think the the reality is like you, you want to see some sort of pushback, some measure of, of the mm-hmm. Red Wings asserting themselves in this game at five on five in a way that just didn't really happen in that game in Boston. And starts have been a big part of that as well as as, as the Red Wings have, you know, slipped a little bit from those scorching hot first six games it's been a lot of chasing games and that that islanders game fit into that category um the panthers last night um that first boston game obviously so uh i think it's always that tricky thing with hockey of i feel like a lot of teams and a lot of fan bases end up feeling like oh our team always gets out to these bad starts and you know what is actually materially different about starting a game than the whatever remaining 50 minutes of the game and yet it it is something of a theme here for Detroit. And so it's it's hard to ignore that as, as a, a source of a, where growth is needed, I guess, a place mm-hmm. where growth, growth is needed. Yeah, the, the bad starts can't be as bad as like 2016, 2017, when Jimmy Howard had let in four goals to start the game. And then they put in Preeti Razik the next game, and then he'd let in four goals to start the game because the defense no-showed. But um, <laughs> not, to, not to, to suffer past pain again, but... Um, yeah, those were those were some some tough seasons, but I, I I do think they're in a spot where they have the the talent and the coaching to to overcome that, and I, I think part of it is is just mental, and that's what playing Boston will give them an opportunity to do. I think if they can have a, a I, I don't want to say if they can beat Boston, but if they can have an admirable um, effort and and really go back to the systems they want to play and 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 the the way they want to play it at five on five, um, I, I feel like that's as much as it's getting rid of a mental block that, okay, we played well against uh, Boston. If, if you're Detroit, um, I, I think that's the, the biggest benefit of that game is it's just a quick turnaround from a, a pretty embarrassing, I, I shouldn't say embarrassing, a pretty sizable loss um, mm-hmm. to be able to overcome that. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think even a, another kind of contextual factor that may be slightly in the Wings' favor here is when the they went to Boston, the Bruins were coming off their only loss of the season, that overtime mm-hmm. loss to the Ducks that they sort of blew a late lead. Now, yeah. the Bruins will be going into that game kind of riding high off a shootout win in Toronto last night. Maybe some supplemental discipline coming from Brad Mar- for Brad Marchand, although I would be yeah. – uh, he was involved in an – I don't know, an ugly kind of slew foot can opener type combo in the corner on Timothy Lilligren. There was no mm-hmm. penalty called on the play, which makes me think it's the kind of thing where the NHL's ceiling on discipline will be a fine rather than suspension, mm-hmm. but uh, potentially something to to keep an eye on here going into that Saturday night game. But either way, I think for uh, Detroit, it, it is going to be easier to play the Bruins when they are coming off a win than when a team has lost its one game of the season so far um absolutely so through 11 games the red wings are sitting at six four and one they are fifth in the nhl in goals per game at 3.64 they're 12th in goals against per game at three even the power play is sixth in the league that's 28.6 percent the pk is 10th in the league that's 83.3 percent my question for you connor is um where have you seen, what are you excited about based on these first 11 games from Detroit? And where do you see uh, sort of areas where you're a little nervous, things that you think need to be improved, a sort of glow grow situation, if you will? I I think penalty kill I'm excited about because I, I remember a day and age when when the penalty kill was, I don't know, it, it was like a, a, a thin, like one ply tissue and, and teams could just like easily like blow through them. Um, not, not to use a tissue metaphor, but um, no, they were just, they, they used to, to really struggle at, at, at killing penalties. Um, and it wasn't so much like positioning and, and, and having the right guys out there. It was really just, they, they couldn't execute. They couldn't overcome the talent gap that other teams had on them. And I feel like they have a lot more um, depth in terms of players who can go out there and, and, and disrupt and, and kill a penalty. Um, I, I, would say I was excited about the power play, but I'm actually going to say that's something I'm concerned about now that they're sort of falling back down to earth. Um, over five is, is a little tough against Florida, um, to, to put it put it lightly. Um, I, I think if they can get the wheels in the bus again um, and, and get that rolling, I think that's going to going to be beneficial for them, especially just because special teams are, are such an advantage if you can do really well at them. I mean, obviously, any anything you can do really well at is an advantage. But um, I think if they can get the power play going again, that'll be obviously a, a good thing. But that right now, it's a concern for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the PK, I think you're right to point to like personnel is a major factor here as far as bringing in a guy like JT Comper is probably the most prominent name there. But then lower down in the lineup, uh, looking at a Christian Fisher on up front and Justin Hall on the back end, those are specialists at the PK and Fisher probably even more so than Hall. But guys who like that is what they do, um, you know, that's how they've made a living in the NHL. And I think that's something uh, again, we t- we've talked before about the the sense that like. For some of these rebuilding teams, it's not so much we we tend to focus on whether or not they have that kind of top end talent at the head of the lineup, but often where those teams really suffer is in the guys who are in on the like third and fourth lines or on the third D mm-hmm. pair where they you inevitably end up with bodies who realistically are not 
NHL players. And without wishing to, you know, name names here, I, I think it, if you've watched the Red Wings over the last couple of years, you've certainly seen a number of those guys. And so to replace some of that with sort of NHL ready talent, and in particular, again, specialists like Hall, specialists like Christian Fisher, um, who who kind of thrive in that capacity, I think that's a, a major step forward and and part of the reason we've seen another step from that PK unit. Yeah. And it also just saves legs for, for some of the, the star star guys who are going to go out there and try to score. I mean, the less Larkin is out there on the penalty kill, the more he can use his, his legs to to go make a difference on offense. Um, the more Mo Sider doesn't have to play the penalty kill and, and, and kind of stretch out of his comfort zone a little bit. It's good for him and, and he can be more active on, on the power play and, and in the offensive zone. But I, I do think, um, the effect of that is going to be felt throughout the season. Um, just because like in, in terms of throwing guys out there for, for more minutes and throwing guys out there in different situations, that'll add up. That'll be a grind of sorts. Um, so I do think just the, the cumulative effect of not having to throw Dylan Larkin out on the, the penalty kill for like the full time. Um, Cause I remember a day and age when he was out there for pretty much every single situation and, and they gave him, pretty much free reign to, to, to be out there. Um, the more you can be strategic in his usage, um, the better. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And we're still seeing him on that unit, but to your point, it, it doesn't have to be like, okay, you're the first guy over the boards when we go right. shorthanded. Okay. Yeah. We're on and, a power play. Here you go, Dylan. And his speed, you want him out there for sure. Um, just because, you know, if he catches a, a, a power play lacking, like there's a pretty good chance he's going to have a, a shorthanded opportunity. Um, but when it comes to, just in general, his best usage. I, I don't think it's the penalty kill. I mean, you, you want him to to go go create. Um, so the more they can they can do that, and the more they can put someone else to to do the the, the dirty work, so to speak, and the the penalty kill. Um, I think that just bodes really well for Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if they're seeing the results. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then as far as the power play goes, I think it, like you said, and and like we were talking about in reference to that Panthers game, it's hard not for that to be something of a concern, just given the sort of trajectory of the season as being up at around 50%, which you knew wouldn't last to having dropped off and still being at that, you know, six in the NHL. I think if we, if I had told you before the season started, Hey, the Red Wings are going to have the six best power play in the NHL after 11 games, you take that in a heartbeat, but just given the that it started so hot and has since looked a little less convincing that that's cause for concern. Um, when he was talking at his press conference last night, Derek Lalonde mentioned that he feels like it's time for a little bit of a rethink with the power play and that he's especially um, not concerned, but uh, I don't know. He He's seen the power play struggle more against some of the more passive PKs that they've played against as opposed to the more aggressive ones. Um, he's also made the point before that he, he feels as though it's on the penalty kill that you see right now in the NHL, kind of the biggest schematic variation across the league that at five on five, he's made the point that it's sort of such a copycat league. Whereas on the PK, as he's seen it right now, there's a little bit more variance as far as what teams are trying to do across the league, which I think is interesting. Um, So Pittsburgh, or excuse me, not Pittsburgh, Florida, um, certainly one of those passive PKs. uh, And we saw it just give the Red Wings problems. They really didn't create a lot of, it's not just that they were 0 for 5, it's that there weren't a ton of great opportunities. I think Daniel Sprong had one chance that was sort of off the rush, cutting in, and he got the crossbar in the first period. But other than that, 
it, it didn't feel as though the power play was all that great. Although also to be fair, two of those power plays were shortened quite a bit by penalties that the Red Wings ended up t- take. Or, or excuse me, the first was a penalty that Debrinket took pretty quickly on a power play, and the second was thirty seconds of that power play had been eaten up at the start by uh, four on four because the Red Wings were shorthanded when they got it. So definitely. Um, something to monitor, I suppose, to to see if we see any changes in personnel. Um, you mentioned Mo Sider on the penalty kill. I think it's worth giving him plaudits for how good he's been on the point. I think mm-hmm. there there were these sort of questions about like, well, if Shane Gosses Bear is coming here to play as a power play quarterback, then is Sider still on PP one? And in fact, having the two of them together has has generally been quite convincing. And I think you see that with Sider, it it is a, a sort of simple game but he's making all of the right decisions it doesn't have to be kind of spectacular plays from him it is just that kind of tempo setting that facilitation that he's looked really confident in and so i think that that and his chemistry with gostas bear has been a, a source of i don't know excitement out of those first uh 11 games yeah definitely and and to speak to your point too about just a, a passive penalty kill i feel like it's just very difficult when the, the power play, you're just trying to create chaos. And I, I think we've learned that a lot from, from Michigan's coach, Brandon Nerado, that you want chaos. You want teams to be out of position because that's when you can can pass across the Royal Road and, and someone scores a one-timer. So when someone just sits there and you're like, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm passing, I'm faking a shot. Like, I'm trying to get you to move. Why are you not moving? Like, that's frustrating. Um, and so I feel like that could be part of the the – as you're mentioning, the Panthers were more passive. That's probably why they were very successful. Just because when you, it's you know, it's coming to you very easy. You've been so successful on the power play. Teams have been biting. Teams have been getting out of position, and you're able to capitalize. When that doesn't happen, it's sort of a recheck of like, okay, where where are we at in 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 this process? How do we overcome this? Um, and and doing that on the fly can be rather difficult. Yeah, 100%. Not, not to say that I'm some cerebral hockey player because I can barely skate, but um, <laughs> I, I, I can just see the frustration some of the time when, when that happens. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's one of those things where like zone time could be sort of a deceptive way of evaluating mm-hmm. power play success where like obviously you want to have the puck in the offensive zone for as much of a power play as possible. And part of the problem yesterday was that we saw at one point a sequence in the second period where Shane Gosses bear is just chipping it out of his defensive zone on the power play mm-hmm. because the Panthers are applying so much pressure shorthanded. And that's a moment where like you could really feel in little Caesars arena, like, Oh, this is not going well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing off of that uh, is with that kind of creating chaos, I think it's important that, puck movement in and of itself is not actually accomplishing anything for you, right? You have to be mm-hmm. moving the penalty kill. And so if the penalty kill is just kind of sitting back, staying in lanes, and you can't um, find a way to get them moving, it's very hard to then set up those backdoor plays and those you know easy one-time type goals that a power play is naturally going to be seeking out. Yeah. Cool. Um, I think for me, the my glow, if you will, from from the early season results is the progress relative to Buffalo and Ottawa, at least in the short term. We've talked about the those Detroit, Buffalo and Ottawa as uh, kind of peers for one another, given that they're trying to you know make that acceleration out of the rebuild in this same season, which is something that I think we've seen from all of these teams that rebuild. It's a lot easier to tear it down and and kind of lose on purpose and accumulate some of those high-end picks than it is to then accelerate out of that and become a competitive team. 
Um, and I do want to clarify, I'm obviously I'm talking about in the short term, sort of relative to this coming season, because of course, like uh, your long-term evaluation, I think of, of these three organizations isn't going to change that much based on just 11 games. But I think you can see kind of the vision of what the Red Wings have wanted to do in these last two off seasons, where I think there were a lot of kind of eyebrows raised around the Andrew Kopp contract last summer or the JT Comfort contract this summer of like, wait, I thought they were rebuilding. Like, why are they signing these veteran players? And you're seeing that by making those commitments and getting those guys into the lineup, this team is ahead of, again, we're talking short term only here, where Buffalo and Ottawa are just in that like baseline NHL competence kind of way, especially at the lower down in the lineup, like I was saying earlier, that I think you're seeing real signs of progress. And so maybe there are still kind of longer term questions because Detroit's lottery luck has meant that they haven't gotten guys like Rasmus Dahlin, like Owen Power. Um, Tage Thompson, I know, is not like a lottery pick, but that level of kind of young, really high end talent or for Ottawa, you know, Tim Stutzla, Jake Sanderson, who, of course, the Red Wings could have drafted, but picked Lucas Raymond instead. And I, I don't think that's, you know, an error by any means, but uh, mm-hmm. just those level of players, I think maybe Detroit doesn't quite have all of all of those star power pieces. But as far as that short term success, I think that is a real marker of progress. And if you're thinking about making the playoffs out of the Atlantic, the fact that it feels as though you're definitely at the top of those teams trying to push up into the postseason, even if you aren't necessarily quite at the level of a Toronto, of a Boston, of a Tampa in the long term, I think that is is a meaningful sign of progress. For sure. And and I think, too, it's more than, than just the lottery luck as well. Um, I, I feel like, and this is especially for Ottawa, I feel like asset management has, has been key to those two rebuilds as well. Um, being able to pull the plug on Eric Carlson and, and trade him, I think, was huge for Ottawa just to know that they were beat and then acknowledge that and try to respond to it. Um, I, I feel like with Detroit and, and the infamous streak, um, you know, Kenny Holland very much just tried to keep it going um, and, and and see if they could make the playoffs and, and keep the streak alive versus prioritizing building a a good roster that can compete. Um, and so you saw a lot of really good players just have to retire or, um, you know, move on or, or quit their hockey careers after the Red Wings or move through free agency. You didn't see the Wings moving a, a, a marquee player to another team and, and getting something in return. Um, so so there is a loss of 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 value, a loss of, of assets through that that I think Ottawa had just avoided very wisely um, in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they were, I think, really made fun of and kind of dragged for the, mm-hmm. what they got for Carlson at the time. And then you look back on the trade, and obviously the Sharks have since flipped Carlson themselves, and mm-hmm. things have not gone well for them, to no. be sure, at least as far as short-term resorts go. But when you look at a couple years on from that Carlson trade, I think it's obvious that that Ottawa did really, really well for themselves mm-hmm. with that. And you're never going to get a one-for-one value for a really star player because teams just don't have the the assets that they're available to move i mean if, mm-hmm. if you're trading for a player like that you believe you're a contender so there's a lot of assets that you're not willing to give up and and then you're trying to piece together prospects and so it's just figuring out who you want as an organization when you're moving a, a guy like carlson and, and ottawa did a good job of that. yeah not usual that i i praise <laughs> ottawa because they've had such ineffective leadership and, and ownership but um you know surprisingly when the when the chips were down they they clean the table. Yeah, a hundred percent. And so then, uh, and we've seen more of that kind of Ottawa ownership drama in the last week. <laughs> yeah. But 
so then my kind of area of growth, area of concern for Detroit is, and I've alluded to this already, we've both talked about it already, that, okay, what is the attacking, where is the attacking threat coming from if it's not coming in transition, if it's not coming from the power play? Um, I think we've seen this team, as it was you know, really going in those first six, seven games, there was a quite heavy dependence on rush offense and on creating offense on the power play. And in games like that Boston game, which I think was the most acute example of this dynamic, we saw just turnover after turnover at the offensive blue line for Detroit. And I think, I don't know if that's, you know, a coaching point of a kind of reticence to dump the puck in, but I think, I mean, from a matchup perspective, certainly against a team like Boston, that's where we've seen them vulnerable, right? That's Mm -hmm. how Florida flipped that series last year in the first round was get everything behind their defense and, you know, get to work, be heavy on the forecheck. Um, and we've seen glimpses of that from Detroit. Um, I think Andrew Kopp and and JT Comfer have both been quite good at kind of getting that cycle game going. Michael Rasmussen, another guy who kind of naturally plays that way. Those three had been together. They've since been, um, it's now Kopp, Comfer, and Perron, but still, you know, elements of that. But I think if we don't see this team start to develop a little bit more consistency as far as its offensive zone creativity goes, that is going to become a problem over the course of 82 games. And, you know, again, still an encouraging start after 11 games, still a start that you take. But I think the with that start, they've sort of raised our expectations and, and raised the, you know, metrics by which we're thinking about this team. And, and so given, you know, hey, this looks like it could be something, and not to say that this is a cup contender or something like that, but it's an exciting, promising team that at least has a reasonable chance at the playoffs. And with that in mind, you'd like to see them add a little, a few more layers to to that offensive game. For sure. And, <clears throat> I, you know, structured offense in the offensive zone, it may not be the, the most um, efficient. Like, you know, teams might only score a, a, a single digit percentage of, of those opportunities but you still have to try. You still have to be decent at it. Um, and, and so if you do have an advantage there, like a goal is a goal, you know, it doesn't matter what way it's scored. It's still something on the scoreboard that can help you win. Um, so if they're able to improve that, I, I think it'll benefit when they have the power play running, when, when they're so good, you know, on the rush, I feel like when they get all those pieces together, that's when they'll, they'll be able to, to really take that next step and, and, and hit on all cylinders. All right, we're going to wrap up this week by talking quickly about a story that broke last week um, before we did the show last week. But I sort of thought at that point that we were going to get more news about it subsequently. So I was like, "Eh, let's hold off on this. And then we did not get more news about it subsequently. (laughs) So uh, what I'm referring to is a 41 game suspension for Senators forward Shane Pinto. Um, Officially, the suspension was described as for activities related to sports wagering, but included in the statement that um, the NHL put out announcing the suspension was the point that there was, quote, no evidence that Pinto made any wagers on NHL games. So immediately it's this sort of weird dynamic of like, well, what exactly is he being suspended for? Because NHL players are allowed to bet on stuff other than hockey. They just can't be betting on the NHL. Um, and so, uh, the, I think the best reporting that I've seen on the story was from Chris Johnston in the athletic. Um, he got into it in a little bit more detail. He kind of 
called attention to the fact that this had to do with a third party proxy better that the NHL had issue with, which still is like, okay, I have a vague sense of what that means, but without knowing the specific incident, it's sort of like, well, if he wasn't betting on for, on NHL games, 41 games seems like way too many. Mm-hmm. And then if he was, or had this proxy doing that, then wouldn't he be, be like being banned forever would be on the table, I would think. And so kind of in classic NHL fashion, the lack of clarity here is, uh, I don't know, not surprising, but just, I don't know, counterproductive, I would say. Um, the one detail that I just loved from Chris Johnson's article was that the specifics of the situation around Pinto are, quote, intricate and nuanced, according to a league source. And it's like, oh, it's good to know that there are details. We're just yeah. being, not being made privy to those. So, Connor, I guess, what was your reaction to this news? I was, my jaw dropped a little bit because the Senators have bet 99 as their helmet sponsor. And there are pictures of Pinto wearing that helmet. And maybe it, you know, maybe he had a deep personal connection to that with with everything going on with with the sports betting. Maybe he was felt seen by wearing it, but no, um, it's like you can't take so much revenue from from sports gambling, and then with zero details given, with no evidence that that he bet on his own games or bet on NHL games, suspend him for that long. So that makes me think that there's some reason that they suspended him that we just don't know about. Like, I don't, the NHL does very stupid things very consistently, but I don't think they're dumb enough to, to, you know, ban someone for half a season and not have a, a, a reason for it. But like, I still haven't seen the, any, any good reason. Cause as you mentioned, it's intricate and nuanced details. Like let's see them, let's have some clarity. So it's, it's just another instance of uh, the NHL really, really fumbling the PR situation, um, which, which they've consistently done uh, in, 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 in recent years. It's hard, you know, it's hard to think of examples of a scandal because there are so many scandals um, that the NHL has, has inadequately dealt with, but, but for Shane Pinto, it, it, it's tough to see someone, you know, miss half a season, regardless of, of what he did. Um, it, it is going to affect his career and affect him, um, especially because he was starting in the preseason to, to really get his feet under him. If I remember correctly, he had a pretty hot start or, or the last time he was playing games. Uh, yeah, well, I think he I'm not sure he played in the preseason because he's still a restricted free agent right that. now, which is maybe it was month. last season that. OK. Yeah. Uh, hold on. But that free agency is is like a pretty central variable here, because initially it sort of seemed as though, well, he's not going to the games are not going to start counting toward his suspension until he. Um, signs a contract, which would obviously then put the senators in a very, you know, a fortunate position on some level of being able to really squeeze him on this contract. Like, Hey man, you got to sign this if you want to start taking away the suspension. And in fact, that was not the case, mm-hmm. uh, but he is still a restricted free agent. And like, it's hard to understand as like restricted free agency is already terrible for these players. And so to now be in this position, like, it's going to be awfully hard to negotiate that contract. Um, and like you said, it's just the lack of clarity, which is, because it's the NHL, it's not a surprise, but it, it just seems like such poor, poor policy. And their stated reason for that is that it's part of the uh, like non-disclosure agreement within the settlement that they made with Pinto. 
because that's how this was done as opposed to Pinto just allowing like um, Gary Bettman to be sort of judge and jury of this case. However, he saw fit. They they did this settlement that then was like, OK, we're not going to talk about this. But given the, the potential impact on other players in the league, it just seems obvious that you need to explain very clearly what Pinto did Mm -hmm. so that people can say like, okay, this is where the boundary is because as it stands, we just don't have clarity on what actually happened that was so troublesome and would warrant a 41 game suspension. Mm -hmm. Yep. I double checked. It was last season, Um, 35 points last season in in 80 games, minus 21, but um, it was the senators. It was the senators. (laughs) We're diving on the same joke there. Yeah. And and to be fair too, I, I think your point is really good that other other players, other teams need to know exactly what he did wrong so they don't replicate it. And I think that that's one of the issues the NHL might face pretty often when when things are so covert. It's like there's no there's no playbook that's observed that's wrong for teams to improve on. You know, they're they're kind of operating in the dark. So then when you don't have any info on a, a half season suspension which is that's got to be one of the longest in a while. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to think of anyone that got banned so long. Um, I think of like Rafi Torres, but way back. Right. But um, yeah, I think that like, was longer. Uh, Tom Wilson got 20, and I think that was reduced down to like 14 yeah. a couple years ago. I think that was the year after the yeah. Caps won the Cup. I, yeah, I mean, half a season is considering the the pressure that I'm sure senator's ownership put just because i'm sure they'd love to re-sign him and, and get him in the in the lineup uh or um you know see if a team would offer sheet him or move him or something um I, it is interesting to see that it's half a season so it like it's the nhl so i don't want to say oh it's a half season so it must have been something sizable because the nhl does you know makes bad decisions pretty consistently or, or decisions at least that don't make a lot of sense um but it does give me the impression that there's something that that is, is pretty rough. And if they're signing an NDA, um, that also seems, seems a little odd because I feel like as a player, as much as it's embarrassing that something might've happened, you don't just want to get a 41 game suspension announced and no one knows what it's for. Um, so for, just from a PR perspective, but maybe that's not what was considered in this, you know, mm-hmm. and until, and- until we find out the, the intricate and, and uh, nuanced details. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> guessing the intricacies and the nuances it's like big lebowski a lot of deals a lot of a lot of ins a lot of outs a lot of what have you's on this one yeah um so i i think whenever like as these leagues have progressed into uh legalized gambling and as you said like the senators have bet 99 on their helmets um the the issue of competitive integrity and sort of preserving the perception of integrity obviously is important. Like you don't want these players betting certainly on their own games. And I think it is fairly common sense that they shouldn't be betting on NHL games at all um, one way or another, but without knowing the specifics of what Pinto did, it's hard to feel as though the suspension is justified because we have no sense of whether like competitive integrity was in jeopardy through all this right like let's say shane pinto had like a friend who also was using his gambling account which like probably an irresponsible decision by shane pinto knowing what your job is and like this friend places a bet on a whatever an nba game and now shane pinto is suspended for half a season like that it just doesn't really add up to me um that without that kind of clarity that this is something that is truly jeopardizing like 
putting things in risk as far as the integrity of the results of these games. And I think for Detroit fans, there's the um, also the parallel with Jamison Williams, uh, the receiver for the Lions, who was suspended for six games at the start of the season. Um, and that ended up getting reduced to four for like no real reason. <laughs> but Williams's yeah. offense was that on a team road trip, he was staying at the team hotel and he placed a bet on a college football game. And that resulted in him getting suspended for six games. And the league, I think, slightly came to its senses and cut that down to four, which is interesting because, it, excuse me, it, it was a sort of acknowledgement that like, oh, maybe there was no real point to this. And like these leagues do have the power to just be like, eh, this is kind of a made up thing anyway. Like, oh, we, we got this wrong. We can just change it. And so with Pinto, like yeah. the NHL could still be like, oh, this didn't really make sense, in fact, and, and we can go back on this. But like that Williams example is a perfect illustration of like, OK, this is against the stated rules of the NFL. And so maybe there is some measure of punishment that, that should be doled out over that. But in no way is, is that is what him betting on a college football team at a team hotel as opposed to 12 feet outside of that team hotel an issue like that that's not something that you're like oh now the nfl is rigged it's it's performative it's it's the nhl showing that they care about this issue that they don't care about because they're willing to take all the gambling money they're willing to put all these ads they're willing to put a million and one gambling ads and commercials in their product um and and on the boards you know and on, on jerseys on on uniforms um so it just seems like they're trying to show everyone like we care about gambling. Don't do that. And, and wag the finger. Um, but obviously with, with no details out, it's just really hard to to see whether that was merited or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. Just again, classic NHL, no clarity and seemingly at best confusing policy at worst, bad policy. All right. Uh, before we wrap up the show for this week, I have a quick list I'm going to read for you, Connor. And I want to, so I'm gonna give you a list of 10 names. I want to see if you can identify what this list is. So we've got Jack Hughes, Elias Pettersson, Jesper Brat, Quinn Hughes, Artemi Panarin, JT Miller, Dylan Larkin, David Pasternak, and William Nylander. Is that list ringing any bells for you? Sounds like scoring leaders, but I'm going to say assist leaders. Okay, you you were on it with the first point. So that is the ah, top 10 in the know. NHL in scoring right now. What I want to call attention to here, the reason we were closing the show with this, is you've got Jack Hughes, NTDP alum, spends his summers in Michigan. Quinn Hughes, same thing, also went to the University of Michigan. JT Miller. Should, should, have, been a, should have been a Red Wing. Should have been a Red Wing. <laughs> should have been a Red Wing. Thank you, Ken Holland, for that one. Um JT Miller, he's from Ohio, but moved to Michigan yeah. to play for the NTDP. And of course, Dylan Larkin, University of Michigan, captain of the Red Wings from Waterford. So that is four players on that list with Michigan ties in the top 10 in NHL scoring, which immediately you love to see. But arguably what I'd love to see even more is, did you notice what I didn't list during those 10? Uh, anyone from Minnesota? Oh, that is true, but uh, so I appreciate you calling attention to that as well. But what I was thinking of specifically is there are no Canadians currently in the top 10 of the NHL's uh-huh. scoring race. Uh-huh. So you hate to see it, Canada. The game's I passed mean, you by. McDavid's hurt, no? Still? Semantics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
McDavid yeah. is hurt. There, oh, chances are this will change by the end of the season. However, in this moment, for the agenda that we want to push on this podcast, you absolutely love to see it. <laughs> for our PR. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's real state of hockey is Michigan. I mean, clip that. I hope Ma- all the Minnesota fans following hear that. No. <laughs> the, it's close. Eat your heart out, it's Minnesota. Close. Yeah. I mean, not that close yeah. when you look at the NHL scoring leaders, but sure. All right. Thank <laughs> for you. For now. Yeah. For now. For now. And eat your heart out, Canada. Maybe you got, I mean, you've still got a good <laughs> women's hockey team. You can keep the curling thing going. I don't know. Find something else. Maybe you can beat us in men's soccer. It seems like that is working pretty well for you. All right. If, 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 if a state of Michigan university would, would actually invest in, in D1 women's hockey, we'd be beating them too. So yeah, would be a real shame if, if that were to happen. Michigan, we're looking at you. All right. Thank you very much for listening this week. We will be back. Uh, a week from today, next Friday. Um, thank you to my co-host, Connor Eargood. You can check out his work primarily with the Michigan Daily, where he's covering University of Michigan football, but he's also got some features going on at College Hockey News. There's going to be some contributions on THN's college site as well. Uh, please check out THN Detroit as well for daily Red Wings coverage. Um, yeah. Oh, and gulagulohockey.substack.com. Can't forget that one either. All right. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.